Welcome to the special bonus part two episode of Startups for the Rest of Us this week. If you haven't heard the episode that came out on Tuesday, Jordan Gall and I got into such just, it was such a good conversation that we ran really long and I just let it go. I didn't want to cut it off because we were talking through our journeys and I wanted to cover the first six stages of SaaS growth and it took us longer than I thought it would to get to everything given the, you know, just the anecdotes and kind of the deep dive into what it looked like to grow Drip and Cart Hook. And so this episode covers the final stages of SaaS growth that we didn't have time to cover in part one. If you haven't already listened to part one, I would highly recommend doing that. So you have the context as we finish up our conversation with Jordan Gall of Carthook. Stage four, I'm calling escape velocity. And this is where you have product market fit and you have, you've discovered at least one, maybe two repeatable channels that are driving leads and you're converting and you're just, you have repeatable sustained growth. Maybe that growth rate is increasing month to month, or maybe it's just, if it's three grand, five grand a month, maybe it doesn't need to increase. If you, if you, you know, if you haven't raised a series A, like it doesn't take that much time growing at five grand a month to build a hell of a business. So for me, I put escape velocity, it was from about 25K MRR up to about 80k MRR. I like it. It's probably about a million bucks is really when I think about it. Maybe three, three. And during that time, we did a bunch of, we'd already done some integrations, but we realized they were working really well. And the more integrations we built, not only did we drive traffic, but we were able to retain customers more because they would link them up. And then there's, there's just a lot of value created. We did quite a bit of content with some success. It was enough success to keep doing it, but it was not like the main driver of growth. But there was ROI there. We did some pay-per-click and it worked so-so. I was doing a ton of podcasting, public speaking, and that was kind of raising, you know, it's hard to measure, but it, it just continued to have drippy in the conversation. They used to say Infusionsoft and Entreport as kind of the lower end marketing automation because the higher ends thousands a month. And it's soon, I want to drip to be like the number three, you know, I want to drip or, or number two, frankly, but just to be the, the, the other one that was mentioned in all the blog posts and all the conversations. And I started hearing it in podcasts and seeing it on blogs with people I had never met never talked to, didn't reach out to, you know, to say, hey, should you mention this? But it just started getting on people's radar because enough people were using it. We also had our Powered by Drip link that contributed during that time. I was doing warm outreach to influencers and friends who I knew and we were doing cross promotion and stuff. So it was a bunch of things. It wasn't, there was not one thing that worked amazing for us, but there were about probably two that drove half of our trials in any given month and three that probably drove 75, 80%. And during that time, we grew to a headcount of five people total. So it was like me and Derek, and then we had a, a guy doing support, and then another developer, and the, our first customer success person, Anna, who many, Anna Jacobs, and many of you know from speaking at MicroConf, and you know, she's, just, she's been in the MicroConf circles. And she was, you know, in Fresno, and she was doing some essentially marketing, like worked at an agency that was doing marketing and really wanted to get into products. And she was like an early game changer for us because I was doing all the kind of sales demos and trying to do onboarding calls. And I'm just not good at that. Like I, you got to know your strengths and, and that's not my strength at all. And she was able to take that off my plate. And not only did I think our conversion rate go up, but we were able to then handle bigger customers who wanted someone to handhold. Because at a certain point, I started saying, I'm just not going to do these anymore. Well, when you're, you know, although Drip's starting price was 50 bucks a month, but like we had people approaching us like, hey, I have, I'm going to bring a list over and pay you 500, 800 a month. That's substantial growth, you know, for an app that's doing 40, 50 grand a month. And the fact that we were then able to service them and work with them and do the extra that they want, that was a big transition for us during this time. Still total 
chaos in terms of the business. I was starting to burn out, in all honesty. I made personal kind of mental health mistakes in terms of just not hiring more out. Everyone was doing their job in terms of building product and onboarding customers and anything else I took on. And I shouldn't have done that. It seemed like the right decision at the time to keep the business moving forward. And I was trying to maximize for growth. But in fact, I maximized for like my personal unhappiness because I was doing a bunch of tasks that I didn't want to do. So that was my kind of escape velocity phase. Really, your escape velocity is more with this second product, what Cart Hook is now. And you listed it as 20K to 80K, I think. So I think we're actually in the similar range of thinking about these stages. Yeah, it's, we broke every rule. We did, we did not do what I would suggest anyone do. And that is we just built an isolation and we just launched. And we, we fully went the build it and they will come route. And it just happened to work. So this, this stage for us was, again, huge success and then so much pain. You know, I'm looking at our ProfitWell graph from all time. And it is a theme for us where we have a few months of incredibly fast growth and then sustained period of no growth and then forcing our way out of it again. And the reason it's happened to us, so it's the same thing that happened in this phase from 20 to 80, we got the product right. That's what people wanted. That guess at a customizable checkout with upsells that works with Shopify and allows you to do all this marketing stuff. That's what the market wanted. And as soon as we released it, the word of mouth was huge and we got overwhelmed with, with demand. What we did was we, we did one thing that was really, really important for the whole business, the whole trajectory of the business. As soon as we released it and got too much demand. So in the first 30 days, we had, let's call it 100 or 200 signups, right? And it was it was $100 a month. So we were like, this is, this is it. We found the right thing, but the product wasn't quite ready yet. So after that first month was just total chaos. We couldn't keep up. We couldn't onboard people. We didn't know, we, we didn't even know how to support our own product. So what we did was we decided we need to slow it down. And how do you slow down demand? We did it two ways. We first said, you have to do a demo. You got to talk to me. I want to understand who you are, what you're trying to do and build a relationship. And the second thing we did was we tripled the price. We went from 97 a month to 300 bucks a month. And we assumed those two things would lead to slower demand. And no such thing happened. It just stayed exactly the same, which is where we realized, okay, we mispriced the product. Thank God we realized it and 3X the price. And then I just went to work just doing one or two demos every day for forever. And those demos were really important, obviously, to hear what people wanted, but also for the psychology of the team. Because it was still just four of us at this point. We eventually hired like a few more. We ended up at a team of six or eight toward the end of this phase. But in the beginning, it was just the four of us. And the motivation we got from my conversations was wild. People were like, I cannot believe you built this. This is exactly what I want. And we just heard a variation of that over and over and over. And that, that gave us the motivation to just keep going. The problem was that the product just was not good enough yet. And a checkout product, you can't be 75% good. If you do anything wrong, you cost people money. And so we went through this period of growth despite the product not being good enough, which just meant a lot of very, very frustrated customers. And that, that just gets to you after a while. So for me, mentally in this period, I, I had a really rough time because I, I had just, I'd basically gone through two years of working on this product, took this huge risk, took money from friends and family, 
And then from my point of view, I got it right. I found the right product at the right time for the right market, which is rare enough. And then the tech just, just couldn't satisfy it. And so the tension within the team was tough. Tension with customers was tough. And we just kept growing. We got to around 80K in this phase. So I'm supposed to be happy, right? I just went like zero to five in one year, five to 20 in another year, and then 20 to 80 in like four months. So I'm supposed to be happy. And I was anything but happy. So it was mentally very difficult. And as we brought on new employees, they just entered a world of pain. So if you're trying to support people, you're trying to help people get onboarded, everything we were doing was just filled with pain, but we knew we were onto the right thing. And that's just what helped us get through it. But it was not, it was not pretty. Yeah, you, you effectively caught lightning in a bottle. I mean, you were early to that, that space of this replacing the checkout in Shopify. And it's again, it's being prepared, but getting a little lucky to have been at that place right at the right time and done that. Because if you had done it a year later, the window was, was over. You couldn't do it. And that's, it's interesting to hear our, our journeys, the parallels and then the not parallels. Like Drip was essentially entering a completely crowded market and trying to build a maybe a less expensive, easier to use version of these clunky, expensive tools that were generally not loved. And that was a very different approach than, than what you took with Carthook, which was, I see an opportunity, I need to shoot this gap and get there right as this opens up. You know, being early, right? I had a talk called the four advantages, unfair advantages of, of building a SaaS. And one of them is being early. And in this case, you were early, but it was because you were there, like outsiders wouldn't have known that this opportunity was available. And that's the thing, right? Doing things in public, creating opportunity. Yeah, that's right. And so at least, you know, and I'm curious to hear on your side, at this stage for me is when I started to hit some real limitations in my experience. When it was a group of four of us, it was pretty straightforward. Guys, let's make some money together. Let's do this. Let's kind of change our lives through building this thing together. And once we started hiring people, I, that got tested. I remember specifically one conversation that Ben pulled me aside and said, look, man, you're our leader and we need you to kind of go beyond money. Like our employees here, they don't stand to make millions of dollars if we sell this thing. They need to work for something more than just that. And that, that conversation with Ben, I appreciate and think about all the time because that was a real turning point on me needing to look beyond money and create something of a mission, something more important. And I had a challenge because I am very against the change the world, make the world a better place. Bullshit. And so I, I didn't want to become a phony and say that that type of thing is our mission when I didn't believe it. So I needed to figure out a way to authentically create a mission for the company that I felt was honest and sincere. Like, did you encounter something like that as you started to, to grow the team? Not in that way. And I think it's because from the start, building Drip wasn't about making money. I never said that. It was more about building a really cool product. And there was a lifestyle component to it. But by the time we, we had three, four, five people, it became, we are truly innovating in this space and building an amazing product for people who don't like these other alternatives. Isn't that cool? Like we are makers and we want to have a very high standard of building an amazingly easy to use product that is super powerful for people. And all of our team members, including me, like loved 
the product. Like we were enamored with this power that we could have. And when we'd look around at our competitors, we were like, that product's like a toy compared to Drip. And that product is super hard to use and expensive. And wow, they treat their customers like we actually, we genuinely believe that we were like not making the world a better place, but that we were making like email marketing and marketing automation just more accessible. And I think at one point I said, like, we're trying to bring marketing automation to the masses, which is a little bit manifesto-ish and highfalutin. And, you know, it sounds kind of in retrospect, you know, whatever. But, but it really was, that was something that our team was just on board with. And we talked about that during the interview process. As everyone came in, it's like, look, this is Drip. You've heard about it. You, you know, you've seen it. And it's this product that's genuinely helping marketers do better things and, and be more, you know, relevant. And it's the code base is great. And the product is easy to use. And it's powerful. And, and it was just all of that. It's like we were proud of it. There was, a, there was a sense of pride among the Drip employees that I think was partially because I was really proud. Derek and I were really proud of what we had built, but also because it was just a damn good product. And so... I think from the start, I didn't do it intentionally, right? It's just who we, it's how we think about it. Derek and I are makers. You know why I wanted to make money? Is so I could make whatever I wanted to. So I had the freedom to do that. You know what I mean? Like money has never been an end to me. It was the freedom that was the end. And so I think I accidentally stumbled into, oh, that actually building a great product motivates other people as well, or at least the people who, you know, should be on that bus. Yeah, I admire that. And I think it's fantastic. I, th- that was not my journey. Right. I, I went into it trying to be clever. I said, how do I basically make, you know, 50 grand a month for myself while not doing any work type of thing? And it's not surprising that you went in with that mindset and didn't didn't have to figure it out in the middle. And for me, it's really it had to get figured out along the way. Yeah. And, you know, it's only recently over the past two years that I really I fell in love with what we do. It, it took longer to, to get there. And where we found authenticity is in helping other entrepreneurs. And that's kind of our, that's where we get our pride, you know, as, as opposed to like, we're so proud of this product. We're very proud of results. We see these companies come in and just become more successful because of our product. And then they hire more people, then they grow. And, and what we like to look at is we like to look at the individual level and not the business level. So the people running the company, the people working at the company, they have better lives because we help them find more success. But it, it, took, it took some time for the clouds to part and to have, to have clarity on that. That's what it became for us as well, actually, is users would come in from another tool, you know, we'd call them like Infusionsoft refugees, where they were coming to try to escape this tool that they didn't like. And they would be so over the moon with it. And they would tell us this is so much easier or this is changing my business that that did become our huge part of our motivation was the results. I'm glad you called that out. I think it started with, oh, didn't we build this great product? And then it became, oh, aren't we helping entrepreneurs get more leads or or do this easier? You know, another memory I have from this escape velocity phase that was up till about, you know, as I, again, it's about from 25K to 80K MRR was I kept thinking, we're going to be profitable soon. I mean, we would be profitable. We'd break even and then we'd grow and then I'd hire and then we'd grow and then I'd hire. So we were never very rarely losing much money, right? Never raised funding. I was pulling some money off a hit tail for a while, but at a certain point, Drip was totally sustainable. But I kept thinking, much like you, like, when is the time when I can start taking money out of this business? But it comes down to this thing that I think is something that I've said at several microgram talks of like a fast growing business really isn't profitable. And if you if you do want to take money out of it, you can, you're just going to slow the growth. Yes. That is the one of the absolute most critical conversations in the entire experience of building this company was a conversation I had with you where I was 
not trying to be a jerk, but it could have been viewed as a jerk question. I think we were at maybe 10K MRR and you were at like over 100. And I was like, you must be profitable. Like, what do you, what are you possibly doing at that stage if you're not pulling profit at 100K? Because I, I couldn't even fathom it. I couldn't imagine. And that's what you said to me. You said, look, when you get here, you will have a trade-off decision. And if you starve it too early, you're going to kill the whole trajectory of it. And you might also exhaust your team because you won't be investing in the hiring to keep up with the growth. And it might sound like an easy decision to be profitable, but wait till you get here and then let me know. <laughs> and you were you were right. And then another 100K. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And I mean, we should couch this whole thing of like card hook and drip are very successful apps in the grand scheme of things in terms of so few products make it to product market fit, even fewer make it to a million ARR, fewer make it to multiple millions of ARR. I mean, so I don't want to normalize it and say like, hey, everyone should travel the same journey that you and I did or anything like that. But I do want people to know that if you grow <laughs> and you do grow fairly quickly in a space and you do have success, like I think it's good to be aware of these stages so that as you enter them, like when you hit product market fit, it's like, okay, now I should be thinking about repeatable marketing channels. And at a certain point, you find one or two and it's like, okay, mental check. I'm in escape velocity phase. What did they say about this? Like I need to hire. It's going to be chaotic. It's this and that. And I, that's really why I wanted to talk through these is to kind of get it in people's head. And again, it, it's not going to be for every app. It's 20 to 80K is, is this and that. And I think certain apps grow faster and slower, obviously. But I do think that these stages can be helpful as a mental model. That actually brings us to stage five, which I'm calling scale. And for Drip, that was 80K. It was about a million, 83.3 and up. And for us, we went into million and then multiple millions. And, you know, we had 10 people. We were acquired. And then I stuck around for about another, it was about a year and a half. And by the time I left, there were, about, I believe there were about 60 people working on Drip under the kind of lead pages umbrella we weren't independent the whole scale phase. We were acquired basically mid-scale, I would say. So part of the early scale was hiring more people, which again was that decision, that trade-off of, well, we're not going to be profitable. We're still growing. I, you know, I think this market's very big. And part of that decision was, I was burning out pretty bad, but also, do we raise money or do we sell? Because we were getting... I mean, I, I got five potential acquirers contacted us in the span of about 15 months. And... I was getting, I mean, as, as you do when you get on the radar and you build this mini brand, two emails a month, three emails a month from people who said we would, we'll fund you, you know? And sometimes it was junior venture capitalist prospecting and stuff, but other times it was serious people who I knew had the money and really wanted to invest in a fast-growing SaaS app. And so that was a big decision for us as to whether to get acquired and take the chips off the table or whether to basically raise around and double down and be like, all right, we're going to do this for two, three, four more years before we think about next steps. We've talked about the corporate side of things and financing side of things a lot through this journey. And I think you did things exactly right on the corporate position you were in, like the amount of equity you had, you hadn't raised money, you got to this point, and then the risk reward calculations of selling or not, I think you did the right thing. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. And you built something that's growing really fast and it's very attractive and you don't need a hundred million dollar acquisition in order for it to be a success. If you raise a bunch of money, if you're at the exact same revenue that you were at, but you had raised three million bucks, 
you're in a completely different world. You limit your option set when you take money early. So I, I've always thought about that. And what we've always looked at is how do we raise just enough to get going, but to then keep those relatively low acquisition offers in play? Because it's just much more likely to get acquired for under 50 than it is to get acquired for over 50. Yeah, and it was it was a calculated gamble. And Derek and I have talked about it since then over beers. And I asked him, this was probably six or eight months after the acquisition. We were having beers. We were still both working at Drip. And I said, do you ever wake up and regret it that we sold? And he said, never once. And I said, me neither. I have never woken up a day. And I think part of that is, you know, the acquisition took 13 months. So we had a hell of a long time to think about it. And Derek and I are pretty, we're very cautious. We think things through. We're not flippant. It was not an impulse decision, right? So by the time we got to that point, it was like, no, we really want this to happen. The harder part would have been as if we got there and it hadn't happened because we were bought into it at that point. And it really was about, you know, I've heard you talking about on your podcast about taking some chips off the table about the, the big risk from the clubhouse app and and they, the founders each took a million off the table i believe and some people think oh my gosh that's catastrophic how can you do that now it is a pre-launch app so i'm like wow i can't even believe the valuation they got but aside from that taking enough chips off the table i was looking i was like look my whole net worth i'm worth millions and millions of dollars in completely illiquid private company stock and i have whatever i had fifty thousand dollars in the bank and i had a couple hundred thousand in a retirement account that's my net worth right now and I'm concerned there was a huge stock market drop and SaaS valuations were cut in half, right? As we were talking about the acquisitions, you know, recession, competitors were just chomping at our heel. Like there was all this stuff going on that I was thinking it was exactly that thought process. I've talked it through on the podcast before, but it really is. It's like, do I take some chips off the table here or do I double down and, and keep going and, and see what happens? It will be different for everyone. But I do think having a, a small win early on and getting to some money that is in your bank account where you can then take bigger risks. Like I'm now in the position where I can just take bigger risks and I can grow a tiny seed, which is not going to really pay me much of anything for years. But I can do that now because of this. So so stage five for Drip, as I said, was scale. It was 80K and up to acquisition. But for you, you, you named it out about 80K to 200K of MRR. You want to talk through what your experience was like getting there? Yes, this was, ooh, this was the opposite. So bookcased by failure at first and then, and then really big success toward the end of, of the stage. So when we got to 80K with all that pain is we, we came to the realization of, okay, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to break another cardinal sin. We're going to have to rewrite the app. And we did. And Rock, who is now the CTO, is probably the CTO right now because he successfully pulled off a rewrite of an app with hundreds of customers and tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day in payment processing. So we got stuck at 80. We got stuck at 80 for months and churn was wild. Churn was like 15% per month. So just growing and losing like 20K in both directions every month. So just adding 20K in MRR, losing a 20K in MRR, just over and over and over and over. That, that was like, that, that's why that stage was so exhausting. So we came to the conclusion that we had to rewrite it. It had to be better. We have to take the lessons learned, all the mistakes we made, and just make a better version of it. And that's what we did. And then it worked. They pulled it off between Ben and Jan and Rock. They pulled it off. And as soon as we released version two, the thing just popped. And we went from 80 to 200 again in like just a handful of months. That stage was really okay. 
let's build out the team. Let's build out a support team, a success team, QA, different engineering leads. Like really, let's let's get this thing ready so we can actually handle what we have in front of us. Let's get marketing so that I'm not doing it. Let's get success so I can stop talking to customers. Let's all these different things, like building out the company. So it was the rewrite. And then the growth from that is what allowed us to hire about 20 people. And that's when everything just became much more promising. So that's what I look at as that stage for us. And then at the end of the stage, we got stuck at around 200 again. Yep. And that, that's kind of what led us into the next phase. And what's, what's interesting about this is, and look, I'm calling this, you know, the six stages of SaaS growth. And obviously there are many more because we're going to wrap this up around a few million single digit ARR, but getting to 20 million, 50 million, hundred million, of course, there are stages you get to hundred employees, 500 and a thousand. And we're not going to cover those because we haven't done them. But after this scale phase, you know, you specifically called out that there's like, there's this transition of, all right, we're scaling, but north of about 200K, at least for you, given the timing, it became company building where you have to, you have to, as a CEO, as a founder, your mindset has to shift. And so talk us through what, what that phase has been, what it feels like. Yeah, so, so we, we built the team in that stage five, the 80 to 200, but we really didn't build the company infrastructure. So we, we hired the people that we needed, but when someone got hired, it was, here's a laptop, here's someone else that does a job similar to yours, I wish you the best of luck. That was effectively our employee onboarding. And the next stage, the, the company building stage, is when we really had to figure out a lot more around process, a lot more around org structure, reporting structures, where the lines are in the company of who's responsible for what and under what circumstance. And I needed a lot of help on that. I had never done it before. We hired a people coach, actually, thanks to an intro from you, who has been hugely helpful and still is. And that's the phase that we're in now. We are well over 200K in MRR. And it feels like we're just now really starting to set the foundation for being able to grow to 50 and 100 employees. And before we do that, we really need to get our act together in many ways. So it feels like for a very long time, survival was just the only real goal. And now we're transitioning into how do we make this a great place to work? How do we make the mission something that's clear that everyone's working toward? How do we attract great talent? How do we keep employees happy so that they don't get bored and then want to go on to their next challenge? That's pretty far removed from me convincing a customer, a potential customer, that they should use our product because X, Y, and Z. It's just a new skill set that I'm being forced to learn. And what I will say is I started off at the other end, cynical, how do I make you know, repeatable revenue? And this process of going from that to building a real company, by far the most fulfilling experience has just been the other people involved. So developing other people, watching them succeed, watching their confidence grow from the time they start to once they really settle in. I talked about this week we signed our biggest customer ever and I didn't talk to them. It just makes me really proud and happy about what we've done and what we've built and just watching the team kind of start to turn into like higher caliber versions of ourselves 
that feels like the stage we're in now. And it's tough to tell what comes next. I'm sure it'll be crazy because it's been that way the whole way. But this stage right now feels pretty amazing. And when the crisis hit, just to have the ability to take care of people the way we want, we have been able to, it feels amazing. It's it's much more fulfilling than starting out and saying, Let, let's make money together. So that part of it has been has been great. Building a startup changed it for the better, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a trip is to hear as, as we talk through these stages, just the range of skill sets that you need if you're going to start a company as a founder to do the customer development, to convince a developer to help you or to pay them, to scrap in cold email and to do a launch and then to grow to 20K and then start hiring and then hire more and then hire managers who hire managers and then being at company building. Like what a broad range of skill sets that you've had to learn on the fly or make up as you go along or what have you. And this is a reason back in the day when venture capitalists would fund a company, the founder would grow it to a certain amount and then they'd oust the founder. You know, they kind of had a clause. They either, either the VCs owned enough or they'd have a clause in of like, hey, we can, we can boot you. Because oftentimes like the founder isn't the best person to run a $100 million company because a $100 million company with XD thousand employees is very different skill set than what you and I have talked about today. And personally, like I'll speak for myself, I don't want to run a team of even 30 people it doesn't sound like fun to me. And certainly 50, 100, 1,000 people like, maybe I don't understand what that requires, but it sounds, like a, it sounds like a burden. And it's partially because my goal was never to build companies. And my goal was never to make a bunch of money. It really was to achieve freedom so that I could work on interesting problems, right? And interesting projects and make things. It all comes from making. And when I roll that back, it's like, but if I want to do that, then I need to make money. And if I want to make money, well, I think I'm gonna use my skill set and start companies, you know, and so companies were a means to an end and have been. Now, I also, of course, love talking about it, or I wouldn't have done 500 episodes of this. But I'm curious from your perspective. So you're going to come back on the podcast, and you're going to talk to us about stages seven and eight, <laughs> which who knows what you know, what they'll be. But do you see yourself running a team? Do you think you could be happy running a team of 50, 100? Yes, I think I, I think I could. I think that's what I want. I remember when we started out, I remember looking at the Inc. 500 magazine every year as I grew up. And the only thing I paid attention to was the ratio of revenue to employees. Now, I didn't care about the total revenue. I wanted the ratio. I wanted the basically revenue per employee. Because looking at a company that made $100 million but had 1,000 employees, I looked at that and said, well, that just sounds miserable. But if a company was making $20 million with eight employees, I thought to myself, that's what I want. I want efficient. I want a small team. I want everyone to like be in a small, tight community. And I still want that efficiency, but I think I want it to be a lot bigger. One of the things that we've said is that Every time we come up against a hill and then climb it and get to the top of that hill, when we look outward, we see so much more. So the opportunity just keeps getting bigger the further we go, that we're not, we're not even close. We're just barely getting started. And the more we grow, the more it feels that way. So right now, if an amazing acquisition offer came through, something that I just could not say no to, I am 100% certain that I would regret selling. Because it's, we're, we're just starting. Just starting, man. I love it. I'm serious about you coming back. 
to talk. We got to figure out what's after company building. (laughs) (laughs) Just not too much drama. That's that's all I ask. I love this conversation. This may be the longest episode of started for the rest of us ever. And I couldn't cut it off. Sorry. No, I, because I wanted to cover, I, I feel like the, what we're talking through is like, it's just, I think it's insanely valuable. It certainly was entertaining for me, me to listen to your stories and relive them with you. First, thank you for kind of guiding it along. Sorry for making it long, just just 2x the speed. And I am proud of us that we stayed away from the darkness. Yes. There's there's a lot of darkness that we just didn't touch on, and that's always there. But there's a skill in ignoring that darkness and moving forward that we exemplified in this podcast. There's a whole other hour and 10-minute episode of us just <laughs> talking about the worst parts of each of these stages, right? Yes. And that's that's something maybe maybe that'll be in your memoir. Yeah. Cool. Rod, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So folks want to keep up with you, you're at Jordan Gall on Twitter and of course, carthook.com. They want to check out what you're working on and Bootstrapped Web. That's the podcast I tune into every week. They can hear you on your journey, man. So thanks again. So thanks again for joining us. Again, to recap, the first six stages of SaaS growth are pre-launch, post-launch, slash pre-product market fit, product market fit. Stage four is escape velocity. Stage five is scale. And stage six is company building. I appreciate you joining me twice this week. And I look forward to seeing you next Tuesday for episode 500. Talk to you then.